RPN, the Roddenberry Podcast Network. The Trek Files, Season 4, Episode 22, Yesterday's Enterprise, Part 1. Welcome to The Trek Files, a look into the archives of Roddenberry Entertainment from the personal files of Gene Roddenberry. And now your host, Dr. Trek, Larry Nemechek. Oh, welcome back, Star Trek fans, all you Star Trek fan historians, all you background fans, uh, all you canonistas, I say that lovingly, and of course, all of our Trekophiles spelled with an F. Oh, we have a good show today, and we're tied into history, too. Yes, it's an anniversary episode. Uh, look, I'm so excited. Just take a look at our Facebook page, facebook.com slash thetrekfiles. Find all the documents that we're going to be referencing this week. Meanwhile, take a listen here for a small sample, and then I'll be right back with this week's special guest. I know you hate time travel, but the attached spec script has an awfully good premise. Three of us have read it and agreed. It is not a script worth buying, but if you'll approve, I'd like to buy the story and have a professional write it. It has the elements to make a fun episode. All right, Trekophiles, now you know, if you could not tell just by listening to that sample, there are certain episodes in the pantheon of Star Trek that stand out for a lot of us over the years now in 54 years of, of trekking along. Uh, we're going to be talking about one of them. It's the anniversary month. This is the 30th anniversary of the airing of, yes, yesterday's Enterprise, which to have gained the almost instant classic status that it did when it was aired in February 1990, uh, you would not believe the insane evolution. Well, maybe you would. <laughs> and when I think about the insane evolution of yesterday's Enterprise, I can think of no better person to have with us to talk about it than my old friend and longtime Trek veteran, Eric Stillwell. <laughs> hey, Larry. Hey. Eric, uh, you can say Eric is everything from a fan and also a leader in the uh, fan world, then wound up working professionally. Everything from a PA to uh, an assistant to the script coordinator for the series, ran his own convention company, uh, was a, uh, an assistant, a protege of Michael Piller, the late, great Michael Piller, and uh, just has all kinds. And a lot of you have enjoyed uh, Eric on the convention scene over the years in various capacities. Uh, if you haven't heard him talk live, uh, next time you get a chance, um, you should do so. But meanwhile, I've got him live right here. Eric, I'm so glad to have you. And most of all, I'm so glad we are getting this recorded. All this yesterday's Enterprise <laughs> yeah, it's saga. It's great to be here. <laughs> well, now look. Um, People can look at the – it's another case of we look at the credits on a show. Credits so often do not tell the whole story. They leave out parts of a story. Now, in this case, there's this Enterprise. You were working on, on the series in backstage. You were an aspiring writer and pitching all the time, as were lots of folks. This was your first professional sale, correct? Yes. Okay. But it was not the cut-and-dried kind of no. <laughs> situation, even as an unagented writer or an aspiring writer trying to turn that corner, right? And, and, and Michael Piller and Next, Next Generation, all the Star Treks eventually provided that by having the, the uh, script submission process for non-agented and first-time writers. 
this is all in the kind of the murk of that. But this really has a crazy story. Tell just. Well, the original spec script for yesterday's Enterprise came from Trent Ganino, who partnered with me later to do the final version of yesterday's Enterprise. But he, so you guys were strangers at the beginning. Yes, <laughs> but he had submitted the spec script, and at the time, I was the person who processed like thousands mm. of spec scripts, and um, he, he was very anxious to want to know what was going on. So he was always checking in to see. What's the status? What's the status? And, of course, this particular script floated around the, the writing staff for, like, months and months. Well, it was submitted in season two because I saw references to Maury Hurley, right? Yeah. Yeah. And so it had been around for a while. I used to joke that we had spec scripts holding up the shelves in my office because there were so many of them. Um, but eventually Trent became a fixture around the office to the point where um, – we became friends, and we were at a screening of Star Trek V at, at the Paramount lot one night. And uh, afterwards, we went and, like, spent, like, half the night at Norm's on Sunset Boulevard, like, dissecting Star Trek V. And, and the two of us were like, we could write a better script <laughs> sorry apologies to the writers of star trek 5 but uh it's, it's okay so we started talking about some other ideas and i told him about the story that i was working on that was a, a time travel story that was uh sort of inspired by the city on the edge of forever where the enterprise was taking sarek investor sarek to back to the Guardian planet to pick up an archaeological team that had been studying ancient Vulcan history. And, of course, there's an accident and something goes wrong, and suddenly um, the Romulans are, like, at war with the Federation, uh -huh. and the Federation's about to fall, and and the Vulcans have been wiped out, and everyone thinks Sarek's a Romulan spy. But somehow, in the altered timeline, yes, in this alternate it. timeline that is suddenly created, and so part of the story idea there was, eventually, Kirk believes Sarek isn't really a Romulan spy. Kirk or, or not Kirk? Sorry, Picard. <laughs> I was going to say Captain Picard. And there might have been some mind meld involved, but right. I, I don't remember all the specifics. But at some point, Sarek, the reason that the time had been altered was the accident that occurred back in history had killed off Sarek. So mm -hmm. the Vulcans never developed into a peaceful race. They had actually joined forces with the Romulans and become this massive empire. No Reformation, no, right. no Romulan schism. And no. so Sarek decides... He needs to go back in time and basically become Surak to, to set the timeline back on course. And this was a, a notion that I had had since I was a, a kid watching the original series thinking, Sarek, Sarek, why do the Vulcans all sound like they're the same person? I'm like, what if Sarek and Surak were the same person? So this was my idea that I had been developing. And around this time... Uh, the the interest in Trent's script started to seep up to mm -hmm. Michael Pillar's And we've got level. Trent's story document here, yes. right? right? And so Trent and I had also been at the Star Trek convention up in San Jose, which is his hometown, where Garrett's Pizza is located, <laughs> and hence the name Captain Garrett, Garrett. Um, was inspired by his favorite pizza place in San Jose. Um, and But at this convention, Denise Crosby was one was the guest 
And so we were waiting to to speak to her after the autograph session. And of course, she knew you from first season. Yeah, you've yeah. been a PA, and uh, and I used to run her fan club. Oh, okay. And send out all of her autographed photos and stuff like that. And so she, we were talking to her, and she, and she says, "Why don't you write a script to bring me back?" And we were thinking, "That's interesting, right?" And and so Trent and I started like throwing around ideas. How how could we do that? And so this idea that originally came about with Sarek going back in time to replace somebody uh-huh. um, s- became the, the catalyst for a notion that if Captain Garrett, who was killed, mm-hmm. ne- if the ship goes back in time, they're missing somebody, so they need to balance things out. And eventually, like, Tasha volunteers to replace her to set the timeline back to normal. So this is where this idea came from. And But originally, uh, I went in to pitch the idea to Michael, and I pitched the whole Sarek idea. And he, mm-hmm. he liked the time, the, the altered timeline, time travel element, because Trent's spec script didn't involve time travel. It just involved a ship from the past shows up, and there's this dilemma. Do we send them back? We know they're going to be destroyed. We know they're all going to die. Do we tell them? Do we not tell them? So it was a, it was a very... Uh, Dramatic mor- yeah. morality tale. It was like a temporal prime directive ish. Yeah, yeah. yeah kind of but a... there was no altered universe. There was no war with the Klingons. None of, none of that was going on. So Michael said, "Why or don't you guys Romulans or anyone?" Yeah. <laughs> right. Yeah. So Michael says, "Why don't you combine these two together and go write a new story and come back?" So that's and by then it was don't use Sarek, use Tasha, right? As the because point. we want to bring Denise Crosby back, and this will be the perfect. Opportunity. And don't use Cisco and Gabriel Bell because we're going to do that in about <laughs> six or seven years. <laughs> yeah, exactly. No. So, that, so that was the impetus of of the okay the story. So you guys c- came together as strangers. A lot of times, people come in, pitch a story, they buy the story, hand it off to someone else, and those two names have no idea who the you, you talk right. to writers all the time. And they say, well, I have no idea who Fred Smith was right. or who Marjorie Jones was. I just got handed the thing and told to go on. But in this case, you didn't start out together, but you did wind up. And we knew each other by then because Trent had become a page at the studio and was uh, okay. one of the tour guys. Yeah, so, so we spent a lot of time together beforehand, and, and then we worked together on the – well, what's interesting about the docs here, so that's that history. And you, I've heard this story in much more detail, so I, that was kudos to you for getting it across. But so some of our other docs this week, I love how – now we're talking about – if uh, hey, Trekka Files, if you notice here, Trent's original just page-and-a-half story here is from August 89, which, yes um, – um, well, no, May 2nd. So, yes, Maury is still – Maury Hurley, it's second season. So this is the coverage uh-huh. that was done by Ant. Uh, uh, Andrew Davis. Who worked with us. And by coverage, you mean? Basically, someone read the script and wrote up a, a synopsis of it, and and I think there's a recommendation mm-hmm. at the end whether or not. Consider. Consider. And then what's cool is on the top page, we have uh, Michael's cover letter here. Early in, well, he's been there for three or four months by then, a couple months. A month late into the season. His crazy, I'm trying to get the damn show going we're writing the rims here barely all the the first half of the third season uh all the thought episodes <laughs> and he's got this note to rick which is cool because we have uh 
these two post-its stuck on here from um, Melinda Snodgrass and uh, Ricky Ma- Richard Manning, and which is the three, along with Michael, who team. It's funny how he teams. He has the politic, the internal politics together. He's he can he can count noses as good as a congressional whip here. And he's like, okay, Rick, I know you hate time travel, but we've got three of us. Just take a look and see. And he summarizes it. But, uh, yeah, you can see kind of the bones of the coverage person. We should say also this is script coverage as opposed to shooting coverage. <laughs> Plus, I think this script may have been the impetus for me to go into Rick, into Michael's office and actually do the verbal pitch with the Denise Crosby element in it. Because we knew that she had, she had talked to us about it, and she had also sent her agent to the studio basically to tell right. Rick, you know, I'd like to come back somehow. And and they were entertaining that Change idea. Change of heart. <laughs> and so I was like, before anyone else steals this idea, right. I'm gonna. I literally practically burst into Michael's office, and he. I said, "Can I talk to you?" And he's like, "Yeah, yeah, come on, come in." And I just did. It wasn't scheduled. It wasn't planned. I just did this impromptu pitch, and he said, "Well, if if Trent's on board with you guys combining these two stories, why don't you go do that?" Well, what I love then, so as we evolve along here, so October third, we've got this memo to Rick from Michael, where he's making comments on a couple stories. One, Phil is Ebnick. Uh, who wound up working for a short time on Enterprise years later, which is kind of crazy. Uh, but the main hint here is how I love how with just a few, you know, sentence fragments, he tosses out the next stage for your script and your idea with all the final points here. It's a memo to Rick. But the whole thing about the time change and, you know, and, and the bottom line here is, well, maybe it's maybe it's a whoopee story and we have her be the pivot point. Because yep. that's the idea with t- the... Difficulty time travel is what's the perspective where people know something is quote-unquote wrong. Well, that was the struggle that Trent and I were facing in the two drafts that we wrote at the story. We couldn't figure out how the the crew of the Enterprise D would know that the timeline had altered. And it was really Michael's idea to introduce Guinan as this person who could see through different dimensions of time. And, and Michael actually did a lot of the writing on this episode, but because of the Writers Guild rules, he wasn't allowed to have a credit on the episode. Yeah, on down, on down the end, which I want to get to because okay. there's, there's even crazier to come. But I do love how he's the, he says uh, the whole idea of we've got some of our people. and Oh, and here's Tasha because that's how we know it's an altered line. And Worf is even over maybe on a Klingon crew somewhere. And well, he would have had Jack Crusher. Yeah, that would have been interesting. Yeah, but that—that's maybe one uh, guest star bit too many. But but it was an opportunity for us to have uh, Wesley wearing his his Starfleet uniform for the first time, Mm -hmm. because we hadn't quite got to that point in the story where he got his field promotion. And uh, it's it's funny because Susan Sackett was so mad at us because she she had written a, an episode where where Will finally gets promoted and we beat her to the punch. <laughs> well, there's so much to talk about yesterday's Enterprise, and it's such a beloved episode for all the right reasons. It was groundbreaking. I remember thinking at the time, oh my god, they finally equaled the sco- with TV budgets and technology and time going by. When I saw Yosu's Enterprise the first time, my first thought was, oh, my God, they finally got to a par with the movies, meaning a one-hour next generation can equal the impact even on their budgets and effects scale. Well, they went all out 
on this episode because we were, we were trying so hard not to write crazy stuff into the script mm-hmm. that we knew would cost money. Of course, Michael's philosophy was always don't think about budgets, just write your story. So when we saw the set that they had basically redesigned the bridge and everything and changed all the lighting, it, it sort of blew us away because we never really expected that yeah. to happen. Reassembled movie bridge pieces yeah. and, and came up with that. Well, it, what I also love, though, and let's talk about this before we go any further. So our other, our last document this week is, what, four pages, four pages of a timeline. Yes. Which I guess gets back the point with this is, there's all kinds of, of traditional and standard routes for Star Trek stories to come to air over the years, and there are some crazy ways they've come to fruition. And yes. yours has to be one of the craziest. Well, there was a little bit of a snafu in, in, the, in the process of... Uh, I mean, this almost reads the, like a legal document or something. Well, it was meant for the legal department because uh, Trent and I found out late in the in the process that because they had worded the uh-huh. contract as an acquisition rather than a contract that basically said, "Hey, we're hiring these two guys to write a story." An acquisition is they just took an existing story and acquired it, and it yeah. which wasn't yes. really what happened because Michael did hire us to write a story, right. and we wrote two versions of it before it was turned over to Ron Moore to write the And they were version. both pitched as next-generation stories. Right, yes. right. Yeah. So uh, this um, error in processing basically meant that Trent and I couldn't have a story credit when when the final credits were being processed it could only be something like based on a story by or mm-hmm. from a story by or some crazy thing and it also meant that we might not get any residual payments for for our contribution so this whole memo that i created this whole timeline of the process was to basically show our legal business affairs department what had actually happened. And they agreed, um, and they made adjustments so that we would end up getting residuals, but we still had to have a from a story by credit and Which not an what, actual buy story by. Right. And some of those, like when they buy fanzine stories and they actually got a credit, but it's in the back end, so they're below right. the line. I mean, they didn't wind up with any. Well, it's it's interesting. I don't. However, I don't see an entry in here. Uh, Denise Crosby requests at convention, please write a story for me. <laughs> I don't see that here anywhere. But it's a great example of, again, people look at the finished product. They think if, whether it's the story evolution you know, in specific moments that may have just popped up on stage that day or put in or something that the graphics or set design or, or visual effects does that alters people's perception of a story. Here's a case where just reading, as I often say, reading even the credits as stated on screen – um, uh, you don't know sometimes if that's a pen name, which means there might have been a, you know, a history there. But also just even the names that are there and the names that aren't there and what proportion they can actually contribute well, to writing. Well, and notoriously in Hollywood, if you see a bunch of writers in the screen credit where it's obviously been rewritten and rewritten by multiple people, it usually means it's not going to turn out very well. Right, it's, right. It's going to be this hodgepodge. It's been committed. So a lot of people thought this is what was going to happen with yesterday's Enterprise, too, but it turned out pretty amazing. You know, uh, 
Yes, we've got so much, and I know you're a first-hand witness, and I don't want to waste the opportunity. Why don't we have you come back, and we can talk about the actual final writing. Okay. And I'm sure you have some probably, because you were there on the lot, and it was your first sale. And I bet there's some personal oh, stories yeah. there's, involved. there's some good ones. Well, let's let's have you come back and do that, uh, Eric. I hope that we've got everybody's appetite wh- uh, whetted here. And also just a... You know, opened our eyes to the the crazy kind of routes that things we see on screen can take, even on Star Trek. Even on Star Trek. A four-page timeline of just how something (laughs) gets written. (laughs) Anyway, thanks a lot, and I can't wait. Let's talk some more. You're welcome. The Trek Files is produced by Roddenberry Entertainment, executive producer Rod Roddenberry. Now, all of our documents and your chance to comment are available at facebook.com slash thetrekfiles. And for more great podcasts check out podcast.roddenberry.com. But for more deep diving of Star Trek behind the scenes, visit Dr. Trek in Portal 47. That's me. At larrynimacek.com. Trek well, everybody. Podcast.roddenberry.com. The Roddenberry Podcast Network.